This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Just About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with David Goldberg, an educator, engineer, innovator, and thought leader. Dave is co-author of A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education. He's done extensive work in transforming higher education. Today we're talking about how higher ed is no longer mostly about building expertise, and it's the same in careers today. To succeed, you have to have some essentially human skills, and you have to keep building those skills. Dave, you are one of the few people I know in real life who I think of as a, as a thought leader. You have been very successful in the academic field, and, and you've challenged so many of uh, the traditions and are having a broad impact. And a lot of the story of that is told in your wonderful book, A, a Whole New Engineer. I wonder if you would just tell us very briefly about the book, and, and then let's go back and, and have you tell us about how you made a big shift from a traditional academic career to somebody who's who challenges the assumptions. Sure, Bev, and, and thanks yeah, thanks for having me on. And, and uh, the book, A Whole New Engineer, is, is it's really a joint memoir. Mark Somerville is a faculty member at a school that's gaining increasing recognition, Olin College. And at the time, I was a faculty member at a big state university, uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And it's the story of how we came to uh, work together and separately. Uh, it was It's really a story of the David and Goliath of, of uh, engineering education, this little school with 300 students and 30 faculty and, you know, uh, you know, 10,000 um, uh, engineering students and 400 faculty, uh, and what they what they learned from each other about how engineering education had to change. But um, and and really, the the book is 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 about it's really about how the heart and soul of education is somehow missing. That education's become all about head and and thinking. And and yet we've ignored uh, human passion and motivation and and um, and how to get that how to get that back and 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 how we figured it out and it it was surprising actually for for Mark and me in writing writing the book uh, the the conclusions that we came to that the the missing element in education was really this uh, unleashing students uh, to be capable and confident. Um, trusting them to have the courage to take initiative to fail and then succeed uh, that seems to be at the heart of um, uh, getting the next the next Steve Jobs um, rather than the next um, uh, corporate drone. Well, you went through some transitions yourself. As you were an educator and you were coming to this realization, you started applying it to yourself in yes. your own career. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you made a big shift out of a traditional academic path? 
Yeah, so I, you know, so and I, I was an unlikely person to kind of be in the middle of these changes, and uh, surprise, it surprised me. I was a, I was a faculty member to, uh, at a research-intensive university, known for my research in artificial intelligence and evolutionary computation, and um, I loved working with my graduate students. Uh, uh, sometimes enjoyed being in the undergraduate classroom, um, as is the case in a in a in a research intensive university, and um, and yet uh, got involved in this this effort to um, to um, to 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 make change. And the the story of that um, now the the story of that change actually starts earlier. It actually starts with my first job out of school in which I worked for an entrepreneurial startup. And um, a company at the time was called Stoner Associates in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And and um, I thought I was going to be programming these, uh, these Fortran codes for analyzing gas flows and pipe and oil flows. Mm-hmm. And I did that. But I, I went on the job and the first day my boss hands me hands me manuals and says, well, uh, help this customer in Harrisburg. And then the next day he says, go on a sales trip to Chicago and help sign up clients, uh, potential clients there. And I realized right then and there that there was nothing in my education that prepared me to do customer service or prepared me to do sales in any way, shape or form. And I I, I went and did them and it was amazing and it was a terrific experience. But when I came back to be an academic, that experience was always in in the back of my mind and and so i i i worked uh, when i had the opportunity i would work in senior classes with with students who were going out into the workforce and, and there were many classes like this where you try to prepare students for going out into the workforce we do it very late um but i i I, I wrote a book in the mid-90s called Life Skills and Leadership for Engineers where I tried to talk about some of the lessons that I'd learned for stoners in, in the hopes of helping young young people who are going out in the workforce. So there was that was sort of the start of it. But then um, then later in my career, about the time of, of, um, of the transformation at Illinois and, and then later the writing of, of Big Beacon, I um, – I got called um, to be involved in this 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 activity um, to help bring about change, and it was actually a the the whole activity to bring about change at Illinois was a reaction against forming another committee that wouldn't do anything. Um, I, and um, and so any, anyways, one thing led to another, and we're in the middle of creating an incubator, not for. And this is within the engineering college. Yes, this is inside the engineering college. uh, But we were creating an incubator, not to create new businesses, as as there are so many of those these days, but we were creating an incubator to to experiment with educational programs that would be more appropriate to um, what 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 we thought students might need um, in the in the twenty first century. And when you started. Um, exploring that was your focus um, very oriented toward the customer, the community. Did you bring that sensibility to it, or what? What did you think would be the the the, the central driving forces for the twenty first century? Yeah, so we so you know some of some of that came from a historical look back at how engineering education got to 
where it was. And we went back and thought about um, scientific management in the early 20th century. And we thought about the end of World War II. And we thought about uh, how corporations were were very expert driven and and, uh, uh, expertise was very narrow. Silos were the were the rule. And we were we were looking at how things were changing in the entrepreneurial world. The Silicon Valley world seemed different, and and um, seemed less siloed and more um, more reliant on innovation and creativity. And we called the our era, as many have, the, a creative era. So how do we educate? Uh, so one of the drivers was educating students to move from or or balance. Uh, um, obedience to authority with uh, being innovative and creative and 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 doing things that have never been done and so that was part of it we we thought of it in a systems way so we brought corporate uh, advisors into the activity we brought uh, students into the planning from the get-go we brought um, we brought uh, faculty not just from engineering but from the humanities and the arts and and they were actually some of the faculty from outside of engineering were very important in helping make these changes and so it was um, it wasn't any one thing but it was it was driven from a sense of history and where um, where we were and where things seemed to 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 be headed so you mentioned writing the big beacon how does that fit in what is that and how does that fit into this piece of of changing educational programs from the inside out yeah so um so after uh, so the the writing of of a whole new engineer was about 2014 and in um in 20 I, i left the university of illinois in 2010 and actually part of that journey um involved you uh i i um I hired you as a coach to help me figure out what I was wanted to do, and I I probably, with if I hadn't hired you, I probably would be on a traditional path um, as a traditional dean and traditionally stymied by the resistance of the culture. But in part, my leaving the university was was made possible because I was helped by your your coaching to to find a different path, and that path led me to. Um, led me to establish a consulting, coaching, and training firm and take training myself as a, le- uh, as a leadership coach at Georgetown. And then after, after that, I was thinking about, well, how, how, can we, how can this be shared? How can we get people, like-minded, like-hearted people to support each other in this endeavor? And, and in about 2012, uh, with, with Mark, we wrote the, the Big Beacon Manifesto, which was a set of uh, aspirations and values and practices that we hoped would come forward as part of this, um, as part of a movement. And so that was the start of trying to establish a movement to bring, bring students, to bring faculty, to bring schools that were trying to change together um, to support each other in change. And uh, that effort continues. And and this year we'll have our first unconference at uh, Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. My sense is that you started with the idea of transforming engineering education to focus on a different set of skills or a broader set of skills and values, and and that in recent years, you've really been talking about transforming higher education generally, that it's it's not what you think and we need to do things in a, in a different way. Is that right? I, 
I think that I think that's right. And and uh, for example, Big Beacon now one of our uh, prominent members in our educational innovators working group is a new medical school campus uh, being. Um, uh, started at uh, Penn State's uh, main campus, uh, away from their main medical campus in Hershey, and so, um, and and we're talking to uh, we're talking to liberal arts schools that are looking at the ways in which the 21st century is challenging their many of their assumptions uh, about what what an education is all about, and so yes, I think. Um, and I though I I look at it this way, in some sense, when you're an engineer, you like to work on bounding cases you know if you get the bounding case um that easier cases are are going to be are, are are going to be easier they're not going it's not going to but if you can kind of solve the bounding solution um the but the solve the bounding problem that you'll you'll be in a good place and so in some ways if you're thinking about injecting emotion um and wholeheartedness into education in certain some ways engineering education is is the is a if not the the bounding case it's a it's a hard nut and and um and so um so i think we're finding that many of the things that we've learned in doing these things in engineering education uh spread pretty easily to other other professional uh, other professional schools for sure and and e- and even even to something that seems quite different like uh like traditional liberal education so what what we're talking about here is creating changes in the the culture of the educational institutions. And that involves making emotional and perception changes in in, in, uh, available to faculty and students. You're you're working with people in the community from the inside out to create a a different kind of culture. Is that right? Yes. And actually that was that was the that was the hard part. Yeah, when you start doing educational reform, you, your mind immediately goes to content, curriculum, and pedagogy, right? So let's change the content in the course. Let's change the the core, the curriculum. Let's change the sequence of and 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 types of courses, and let's teach change how we teach. And I think what if if a whole new engineer is about one one thing simply it's that actually those are those things are important but they're not the main thing the main thing is that what the real locus of of change and and focus of change should be on on at at the organizational level culture and at the uh um at the personal level emotion and those are those are countercultural because we in 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 higher ed we especially we are thinking we're always thinking in rational terms everything's about reason and that doesn't mean that we're going to be unreasonable but a lot of what's a lot of what's missing in higher ed is heart and 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 um, I, one way we talk about it uh, I've, I've started to talk about it is if we think about the changes that have come about um, in the 21st century, if you say, if you look at what's happened in education, for example, massive open online courses, classes where there might be a million students in the class are examples of that. Well, it's easy to get lost and think about the, um, the technology of that. But what that does actually is it diminishes the value of being an expert in the classroom. So that is, uh, an economist would say returns to classroom expertise are diminished. And then when I say that to my colleagues, they go, "Well, Dave, that's fine, but I'm I'm still an expert in my my laboratory, and 
that's not going to be challenged. That's not challenged by the new world, except when you look around and you see young people reading the same papers at age 14 that people don't usually read until they're in their 20s and 30s and having scientific discoveries and starting companies at age 14, 15, 16. So, so actually returns to research expertise are diminished. So there's a sense in which the very idea of the university is being diminished. Um, that, you know, if the expert, if we think of the university as this assembly of experts and, and expertise, uh, the kind of expertise that the university usually deals in is diminishing, that's sort of challenging the whole idea, which has been a stable idea since since uh, the founding of the University of Bologna in 1088. But um, okay, fine, it's been around for nine centuries, but there are people and many people who agree that that universities are being disrupted, um, and uh, like so many other industries have been disrupted, and so. Um, and if the disruption is around the very core idea of how you're organized, what does that mean? And 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 for us, and and a whole new engineer, I think that what we ended up saying is that you know the the way to balance the portfolio to to manage the risk of of becoming irrelevant, the way to do that is to kind of go more deeply human, uh, go more deeply towards emotion and culture, uh, and uh, and be be caring and and. Um, um, and and more directly concerned with with uh, people doing things uh, for their own reasons. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. So it used to be for centuries that what an educator did was at a high level, very often spoon feeding expertise, knowledge, yep. history. Yep. And that's not necessary anymore because there are all kinds of other ways to deliver expertise. And so yep. something else has to take its place. And and what you're saying is um we need to create a culture in which people are conscious of human values and can learn how to share and promote the development of those. Is that right? Well, it's and it's it even goes beyond. It's a I I, I think I think that's right, and it's even beyond being conscious of. It's it's actually living. Um, it's about you know. So one of the things you learn as a coach that you know there's a there's a difference between thinking about and and being, and so how do we um, how do we have a how do we have educational experiences that are um, existential where we where we live um, the thing where we um, where we're if we we have um, we find passion in it a, a, a lot of um, it's an interesting um, one of the ways that we figured figured this out from our experiences at, at Olin and I Foundry was in, in attempting to unleash young people in 
2009 at Illinois, we we put we had we we put them on teams. But we didn't just slap them on teams. We said, well, why? We started with why. Why? Why are you here at Illinois to be an engineer? What is it about being an engineer that you find interesting at this point in your life? And they gave us beautiful answers. Some said, oh, I want to uh, I want to be the next Max Levchin, Illinois graduate who co-founder of PayPal. Great. We 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 admire that. And so and then, then some said, well, I, I want to use engineering to help people in the world. I want to help poverty and things like that. Beautiful. We love that. Another said, well, I just want to create cool technology. Gorgeous. We 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 think that's great. So we we started with their values, and then we put them on teams. And so the interest an interesting thing was they they complained about um, we we put them on these teams, but we didn't tell them what to do. And and uh, and in that they uh, in that experience they we had them blog, and so I think those blogs are still online. And and. They complained, oh, these iFoundry guys don't know what they're doing. They didn't tell us what to do. There's not enough structure here. But about midway through the semester, we had a checkpoint where we asked them to make presentations about what they were doing in these teams. And the presentations were very nice. And there were some interesting plans afoot. And during a, a session at the end where we were asking a Kaizen session, an improve, uh, Japanese word for continual improvement, we were saying, tell, hey, tell us, tell us. Uh, how we can improve, we value improvement. So they told us, but then young woman raised her hand and she said, I, I, this isn't an improvement, I just want to make a comment. Said, well, what's that? Her, and her name's Jamie. Jamie, what's your comment? She says, we weren't sure you were serious about us doing what we wanted to do. But then we realized you were, and it was really cool. And it was at that point we started to realize what, what was missing. And and if this ties back to the point, the abstract point we were making before about expertise, mm-hmm. when you're an expert, you tell and they listen. But when you're there and you say, "All right, well, tell us what you want to do and start doing," um, then you're then that switches the dynamic to them taking initiative and them setting the agenda, and you supporting them. And so that's the that's really the deep the deep cultural shift. It's, it's this kind of being able to be an expert. That doesn't mean we don't hire faculty that, that don't know their stuff, but, but, but we also have to hire faculty who can stand there and watch and support other people exploring what they want. And that's, that's a different set of skills. And that's what we, that goes to the heart of your question about, well, what's, what's really, what do we really need to do? We have to sort of be there for people, we have to be present to them. And the whole thing is actually a different kind of, it's different in a relational kind of way um, that we were there as, we're all there as trusted learners supporting each other in a, in a way that's quite different from telling and obedient listening. And as education is shifting mightily, yes. it, 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 it sounds to me it's shifting in the same way that leadership is shifting with our different kinds of institutions. It used to be a command and control kind of leadership style was necessary, partly just had to keep things simple and communicate them through the ranks. But now what you just described teachers doing is is what we want our leaders to do, isn't it? Yes. I just did a show uh, with um, another great coach, and uh, Kate Ebner from from Georgetown, and we were talking about exactly that that how how different leadership is and 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 how um, how the skills that 
are learned, say, in a traditional education are, are in many ways inadequate to to the job of leadership. And and I, I I don't I think of these these skills as kind of human being one oh one sorts of skills. When I when I took training as a coach at Georgetown, well at first I I resisted it. Uh, mightily, I, I mean, I re- you resisted going, the training. I resisted the training. First day, we I walk in and they said to all of us, they said, "What do you notice?" And I had this reaction to it. I said, "What do you mean? What do I notice? I came here to get some skills, <laughs> and you're asking me to notice." Until I later on, not too much later on, I realized that noticing was a central, was one of the central skills that they were trying to teach us. And but, how was it that I? got to age 50 something and and didn't really really didn't understand that and and it seems to me actually my my reaction to coach training coaches coaches help leaders perform at a higher level they get and they get sometimes they get paid an awful lot of money to do it and yet the the kinds of skills that coaches learn seem to me to be um human being 101 skills and and why is it why is it that uh, you have to get to the C-suite and pay someone four and five hundred dollars an hour to learn this stuff? What are those skills? Those human one hundred and one skills? Yeah, I, and uh, I, I've started to you know. So a lot of people and, and companies say, well, we want we. If you look at there are all kinds of lists of the kinds of skills companies w- want and. And a lot of them come under the category of soft skills. Well, first of all, I hate the term soft skills, but um, because it denigrates those. And actually, those soft skills are no longer soft. They're supported by good science and MRIs and and good philosophy and all kinds of good rigorous thinking. I've I've come to call them shift skills. But if, um, so, I actually mentioned the, what I think is the primary um, shift skill or the primary human being one hundred and one skill, which is uh, awareness and noticing. Um, to what extent are you aware of can can you easily um, notice um, your own emotions and your own thoughts and your own feelings and your own body sensations and and to what extent are you are you mindful of those things in others and and to what extent can you kind of bring yourself into a state where you're you're aw- you're aware of those things. It seems to me that that notice noticing is 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 central, and and uh, and until you actually notice those things, there's really no possibility for change because you're probably in a story about the truth of things. So if you're trying to help a client or yeah. a, a student learn how to notice, how do you go about doing that? Well, I, yeah, so you. Um, I think there are a number a number of things. I think you know one of the things that's helpful is to call these call the give these things a name. So language is helpful, and making distinctions in language um, uh, is a is a is a is a great. I don't know if it's the starting point, but it's a great point. So when you by asking someone to notice and having them have a reaction, that's a good way to re- to get them to realize that actually that's that's something that might be be uh, missing. I think. Uh, Coaches, in many ways, act as uh, surrogate noticers, and part of a job of a of a coach is to to increasingly get the person to be more reflective on their on their own. So, oftentimes, you'll assign things like uh, journaling exercises, reflection exercises. You'll ask people, well, you'll ask people to tell stories about what they noticed in a certain circumstance, and to then. Um, 
in our in our workshops with faculty, we do an exercise where we where we have them tell the story of what they noticed yesterday. And then the debrief from it is not the story, but what did they notice about their noticing? So sort of a meta level question about did did you notice your emotions? Did you notice the thought, your thoughts and feelings? Did you notice body sensation? Were you aware of others yesterday? And and to try to do that um, and, and, and to try to do that without immediately jumping to judgment about whether your noticing was good or bad or indifferent. And a subset of noticing in terms of skill sets um, is listening, isn't it? Isn't that something we often have to relearn and relearn over again? Yeah, so uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question, whether it's a subset or a, I, I, I usually, so the acronym I use for the, the big three is NLQ, noticing, listening, and questioning, and, and, and listening, um, listening both to yourself, your own self-talk and to others is, is huge. And, and, and one of the problems with these shift skills is we, we all think we're, you know, they, we, there's common terms that we use. So when you say listening and you say that to someone who hasn't been trained in listening, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been doing, I've been listening since I was a, a toddler check. Got it. But there's a sense in, in which um, uh, training as a coach or training in in this kind of listening gets you to listen um, differently in different situations. So that it makes, uh, say, listening, uh, when coaches are trained, the uh, distinctions made between listening um, from self. Listen, so when someone speaks to you, oftentimes we think, oh, yeah, that, and you, how do I relate to that? So it's sort of listening from ego or listening from self. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It, uh, listening from self drives most cocktail parties. But then when, when you kind of are tr- learning to listen as a coach, you're listening to understand the other. And that requires you to put aside a lot of assumptions about the words they're using. So somebody might use a word and, and you might think you know the meaning of that word, but when you're a coach, you learn to ask a question around that word and ma- check, check to make sure that you that that your understanding of their term is the same as yours, and and so you learn to listen in a in a in a much uh, deeper kind of way, and you learn um, you learn to shift to these different kind these different modes of listening. But I agree with the basic point you're making that listening is listening is central, and then related to listening is is how you know the kinds of questions. A lot of times uh, in working with students, they say, well, you know. Uh, when I go on a, we'd take them on plant trips and senior design projects, and they say, "I don't know what to say." And I would say to them, "You know, actually, that's you've got it kind of inside out. You don't actually need to say much. You just need to ask." And 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 so and learning how to ask questions, and then learning how to ask uh, coaches are taught how to uh, ask powerful questions that have that don't typically have easy answers that that cause someone to ponder and reflect deeply about what they're doing. In in terms of career, it it used to be that as a professional careerist, what we'd want to do is is what the educator did and get a whole lot of expertise and then sell it in little units and stuff it into some system here or there. But now our career is very often about listening to what's happening and trying to find a way to add some value in a situation. And that might might mean constantly uh, sort of um, changing ourselves so that we can adapt to what's happening. It, it feels like that's sort of what you've done. 
Is is that how you think of your career these days? Is not so much stuffing in your expertise, but but watching for what the need is and finding a way to be part of the answer. Oftentimes, when I'm faced with doing something now, I think about is is that something I know how to do or not? And I think what you're in, and I think the point that you're making is so in a in a time of of great change and rapid change where things are moving so quickly. You know the 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 software that you used last week is replaced by an app on a small on a faster cell phone than than you've ever had before next week. And so how how do you keep up in a world like that? And and I so I think um, w- you know one of the things that I I've I've always thought of myself as being entrepreneurial. Um, and I think that when you when you look at some of the some of the good thinking and entrepreneurship and how entrepreneurs and good study of how entrepreneurs, great entrepreneurs actually act. Um, uh, Sarah Sarasvati uses a word. Uh, she calls it effectuation where people um, are constantly experimenting and, and kind of doing, make doing little and, and another term, uh, Peter Sims term, little bets, constantly making little bets on what might work in a situation where you don't know how to do something. So, so it's, so do you know how to plan? Well, plan the hell out of it. But oftentimes, and I think what's different about our times is that, uh, the thing that you're doing either hasn't been done or it hasn't been done very well. And, and, and nobody really knows how to do it. So planning, which requires sort of causal knowledge. If I do this, then this will happen. And I do that, that will happen is sort of, is, is not as, is not as useful as it once was companies that used to make 10 year, 15 year plans. It's, it's almost ridiculous now, given the pace of change. So how, how can we kind of plan when we know how, and how can we be experimental and make, um, make little bets on things that, that, that might work and then kind of adjust when those little bets do, oftentimes, when you make a little bet, it sort of works out the way you said, and sort of doesn't. So how, so how do you make lemonade out of out of the sort of doesn't? And how do you, uh, how, where do you go from there? You may have you may have said, well, I think this is where the opportunity is. You make the little bit bet, and it suggests that there's really an opportunity somewhere very different than what what you thought, and that that's where you should go. So I think I think that's, I've thought of I've I guess I've thought of when I look back on on the the different element, you know, back to Stoner Associates and be even becoming an academic and then even writing books, all of those, none of those things were really planned, although I had some of those things in mind that, but at, at some point, some, I did something and like in my dissertation, I, I went off and did a, an area of artificial intelligence that wasn't very well known. And I got through it and I said, wow, this is really cool stuff. Why isn't there a book about this? And so that ended up being my my first book that I wrote in 1989 and today it has 72,000 citations. So I, I um, so it, again, it was, uh, but it, it, but it wasn't, it, it was rarely planned. It was, I, I guess the short answer to your question is yes, I, that I sort of kind of adapt and listen, listen and adapt a lot and make, but also make little experiments along the way and see how those pan out. So you've created a very rewarding and enjoyable career. It sounds like, by inventing yourself every day. You haven't had a couple of big reinventions. You've started the day and uh, looked for what 
has to be, and 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 you've often invented yourself. Is 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 that right? It's 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 hard to it's hard to say yes to that, but I think I think that's right. It's, it, I think that's right. I think um, uh, it's, but it's not like I get up in the morning and say, "Well, Dave, uh, what in, what are what are we going to invent today?" It's uh-huh. not, it isn't it isn't like that. But it but I think that's right. I think um, and actually we are, uh, just even on I was walking this morning along the lake, looking at the birds with my my wife this morning, and we were talking about um, the next acts in. Um, in Big Beacon, and and maybe is there another? Is there a book on shift skills and things like? I'm talking about that, and sort of looking at what was possible and how. Um, I oftentimes use the language of a possibility space. How it appeared that a number of a number of things had just happened. To pe- and oftentimes these involve people or p- people that you're working with, or people that so you work with someone and something turn a relationship turns out well. Or you're working with something, and someone in a relationship um, stagnates and doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere. And so when when those things happen, your the possibility space um, shifts, and you go, oh, well, what's possible now? And sometimes when that shift happens quickly, uh, new new possibilities or 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 even clarity comes into mind about ah, I see it now. I should do this thing. And and so I. Um, so, so I guess the short answer to your question is yes, but I, I guess I, I I don't I don't necessarily think of think of it that way every day. But I think that that's um, um, it's the that's theme. Been a key. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that is a theme. Yes, Dave, your career is fascinating to watch. You are so uh, imaginative and creative, and um, I always um, learn something and. And I'm challenged by our conversation, so I very much appreciate you joining me here today. I I can't wait to see what you invent next. Bava, thanks. Well, and thanks so much for your your important help along along my journey. And um, thanks for the great work that you do. Today we've been talking with author, educator, engineer, innovator, and thought leader David Goldberg about how today success means more than building expertise. It means building your human skills. Today's career tip is that the skills that make the most difference in your career are things like listening and being comfortable with change and being curious and staying honest. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer, and I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Music